This podcast contains conversations about violence, death, sexual assault, and includes explicit language. Please take care while listening. This is part four of an on-the-ground investigation into the mysterious deaths of Chris Kramers and Lisanne Frone, two young women who died in the jungle of Panama in 2014. What happened to Chris and Lisanne? Was it a hiking accident, a double murder, or something else altogether? I'm Mariana Atencio. In this series, I traveled to the small town of Boquete with Jeremy Crite from the Daily Beast to reinvestigate this case eight years later. One of the strangest aspects surrounding the case of Chris and Lisanne is just how few of their remains were ever found. After their backpack washed up on the banks of the Rio Culebra, a renewed search began in the jungle near Alto Romero. But this time, instead of a rescue, it was a recovery mission. Searchers were still looking for Chris and Lisanne, but no longer expecting to find them alive. Months of searching eventually yielded a total of five fragmented remains, all of which were found by Ngabe Bugle people from the village of Alto Romero who had been paid to scour the area. I suppose it wouldn't surprise you to learn that Feliciano, the tour guide who reported Chris and the Sand missing, not only participated in these searches, but was present when several of the remains were found. The first finds came just days after the backpack was recovered in mid-June. That was two and a half months after Chris and Lisanne went missing. Investigators found Chris's bifurcated pelvis and Lisanne's left foot severed at the ankle. The foot was inside a sock, inside a hiking boot. DNA evidence matched the remains of the women to their parents back in the Netherlands. It was official. After two and a half months of uncertainty, Chris Kramers and Lisanne Froon were dead. A month and a half later, on August 2nd, searchers found one of Chris's ribs. Then on August 28th, Lisanne's left femur and left tibia, essentially her leg. And that was it. A foot, a leg, a rib, a piece of pelvis. That was all that ever turned up from Chris and Lisanne. Even if you believe Chris and Lisanne died in a hiking accident, well, the state of their remains gives me pause. Is it normal for bodies to be found in pieces like this? What could have destroyed their bodies so completely and in just a few months? What happened to the rest of them? And why is a single bone bleached bright white while other bones were found with soft tissue still attached? What happened to them out there in the jungle? Was it an accident or foul play? The government's official stance is that Chris and Lisanne were dragged to death in the Rio Culebra. But the man who did their autopsies believes they were murdered, even after all these years. And he'll only grant us an audience if we promise not to reveal his identity because he fears for his life. What's in these autopsy reports that he's so afraid to tell us? Do the bones point to a terrible accident or something much, much worse? From Cast Media, this is Lost in Panama. 
an investigative series about the mysterious deaths of Chris Kramers and Lisanne Froh. I'm Mariana Atencio. This is Episode 4, Los Restos. Subscribe to Cast Plus, where you can listen ad-free. And check out our Lost in Panama after-show episodes, where Jeremy and I sit down to dissect this case in far more detail than we're able to get into the main show. There's so much more to talk about here. Rabbit trails we didn't have time for, and Jeremy and I dig deep in these after-show episodes. To listen to them, just go to castmedia.com slash castplus. Chris and the Sands remains were all found in the summer of 2014. From mid-June to late August, all along the Rio Culebra, all in fragments. Common sense tells me if these remains were all found along the river, maybe that's where the women died. I mean, that's certainly what the Panamanian government concluded, that Chris and Lasanne fell from that cable bridge in the jungle into the Rio Culebra, and judging by the state of the remains, the river destroyed their bodies. But does that check out? We circle back to José Donderis, the former head of Cineproc. Remember, he's convinced Chris and the San were lost in the jungle for days, even weeks before they died. He's an expert on the area surrounding the Rio Culebra and can speculate about what might have happened to Chris and the San. When we ask him if the Rio Culebra could have killed them, he tells us yes, definitely. One of the main causes of death for people in Panama is being dragged by rivers. Panama is a strip of land with a central mountain range where it rains very fast, and the rivers grow just as fast. And he has a solid theory for why the women would be near the Rio Culebra in the first place. He theorizes that in trying to find their way back to Boquete after getting lost, the women made a very smart decision that turned out to be very fatal. Remember the basic survival tip, to follow a river. In my opinion, they could have gotten lost in the woods, found the river, and then followed the river. José shows us a map as he explains this to us. He says Chris and the San may have followed the Rio Culebra downstream, believing it would take them back to town. That's good thinking, he says, in general. Rivers do often lead back to towns, villages, places where people live. But unfortunately for them, the Rio Culebra doesn't go back to Boquete. It goes deeper into the jungle and eventually empties into the Caribbean Sea. That's miles and miles away from where they need it to be. José theorizes that one or both of the women may have fallen into the Rio Culebra. He gives us several scenarios for how this could have happened. Maybe they were trying to cross it and fast water swept them away. Maybe there was a rainstorm or a flash flood that swelled the river. Maybe they were already injured and when floodwaters came, it carried them with it. They didn't drown in calm waters. I think what could have happened is they could have been dragged, they could have been injured, one of them could have been helping the other. And the flood came and swept them away. 
Weather factors heavily in Jose's theory. In Boquete, the rainy season started early in 2014, with punishing rains hammering the town and the jungle just days into Chris and the Sand's disappearance. Under those conditions, the water level in the rivers could have risen dramatically due to runoff, and the Culebra and its tributaries could have been prone to flash flooding. I'm thinking about those narrow passageways on the far side of the mountain, huge rock walls with nowhere to climb out or escape. It's possible. Chris and the sand became trapped in floodwaters and got swept away. To Jose, this is the most likely scenario, that Chris and the sand died tragic but natural deaths in the jungle. Many people try to sell the idea that it was someone who harmed them. I still believe that the area where this incident happened has significantly more natural hazards. Even still, José finds the condition of the remains to be strange. He's seen it all, bodies exposed to the elements in the jungle, but nothing quite like this. In my 30-plus years of experience, we found bodies that are naked with marks from animals. But we've never seen bodies dismembered. There's so much contention about what happened to Chris and Lasanne because of the state of their few found remains. Maybe a medical expert can help. So we pile in the car and head to David. That's where we'll meet the man who performed Chris and the Sands autopsies. Can you open this, the trunk from there, chair? A light rain is falling as we drive the two-lane highway to Chiriqui Province's capital city of David. So we've got an interview coming up with this forensic anthropologist, and... We're going to have to put our seatbelts on. Um, so the forensic anthropologist does not want to be identified, and he, he's so afraid, Jeremy. He believes that his life is in danger, that there's an assassin waiting around the corner, but at least he's willing to talk to us. When we get there, we meet in a hotel in David. It is our understanding that you want your identity not to be revealed for this interview. What are you so fearful of? From my perspective, the killer is still out there in Boquete. He believes, and told Jeremy during his reporting for the Daily Beast, that Chris and the San were murdered. That's in direct opposition to the government's official stance that the women fell off a cable bridge in the jungle. Based on the bones that you were able to analyze, does the government theory make sense that it was an accidental death? I do not agree with the state theory because of the low percentage of skeletal remains that we have. We can't say that this was an accident. Rather, based on my experience in Mexico, I would think that this was the result of criminal activity. But he tells us the autopsy reports, the reports that he wrote eight years ago, are inconclusive that he wasn't able to scientifically determine a cause of death for either Chris or Lisanne. Upon initial review, the causes and mechanisms of death cannot be established precisely because of the low percentage of remains found. 
So in spite of his assertion that this was the result of criminal activity, he tells us there's no scientific proof that Chris and the Sand were murdered. Human interference is possible, but I didn't find evidence. Neither did the team from the Netherlands. We press him for anything, anything glaringly out of the ordinary. But he's either unable or unwilling to share more information with us. In 2017, you indicated that that could be evidence of foul play. Has your mind changed? I still don't think it was an accident. Based on his experience, he does have plenty of ideas of what could have happened to Chris and the Sam. I've always had this suspicion. It could be a laboratory in Boquete that conducts various forms of trafficking. Not only drug trafficking, organ trafficking, human trafficking, prostitution and different types of ages, which is a very lucrative business. You can drain a person completely of blood and sell it for $1,000 or more. Hold on. Drug trafficking, organ trafficking, human trafficking? Without any evidence, we're just not sure how believable any of this is. On the other hand, it's scary to hear we could be walking into something way bigger than we thought. Before we leave, he gives us a warning. And above all, take care of yourselves. Our lives are at stake. You need to ask yourself, what is the state doing to protect my life? There is nothing here to protect us. Nothing. You're crossing a line that could cost you your life. Do not gamble with your life. It's not worth it. This rattles me. He's afraid to talk, but an impartial third party might not be. So we call up Georgina Pacheco, a forensic anthropologist based in Costa Rica. We send her the original autopsy reports and ask her to walk us through them. She can help us decode what's in these bones. My name is Georgina Pacheco. You can call me Georgina. I'm a forensic anthropologist and archaeologist. I'm the only forensic anthropologist and archaeologist in Costa Rica. Georgina worked on the case for Cody Dial, an American tourist who went missing in 2014. Cody vanished in the same cordillera as Chris in the Sand, just across the Panamanian border in Corcovado National Park. He was missing for two years, and there was rampant speculation that he'd been abducted or murdered. But then his body was found after two years in the forest. Still, Georgina says forensic analysis couldn't determine with certainty what happened to Cody. It's something we keep in mind with this autopsy in front of us. We asked Georgina what she can tell us about Chris and Lasan upon reviewing the eight-year-old autopsy reports. She confirms right away what the original forensic anthropologist told us. There's just no way to tell how they died. To draw conclusions from so little information is very difficult because you don't have the whole body. You don't have the whole context of what happened. And it could be homicidal. We don't know. It could be accidental. We don't know either. But she is able to guide us through the autopsy reports in detail and tell us what it all means. Because it's very important also to clarify that I didn't see the actual remains. 
Uh, I'm going to talk about what I read and from the pictures I saw. We start with Lisanne's autopsy. What I read from Lisanne's uh, autopsy report is that uh, they found a femur, the left femur, the left tibia, and the whole foot that was inside the boot and inside a sock. There was a, a lot of soft tissue, apparently, even paint, a nail paint. Georgina says, horrific as it sounds, finding a preserved foot in a boot is pretty common. I have seen this in a lot of cases where the foot remains uh, untouched because of being inside the sock, inside the, the shoe, in this case, the boot. It's very easy to have the foot um, separated from the body. Hands and foot are always the first to go because the bones are smaller and because there's not much soft tissue that surrounds the, where, where the um, extremities and the hands or the foot are um, articulated. She says she has every reason to believe the foot, and the rest of the leg for that matter, separated from the rest of the body naturally. There's no evidence it was removed by force. There are no cut marks in the foot or cut marks in the tibia, for example, to, to think that maybe it was altered or human, humanly uh, separated. So it's not that it was sectioned off with a tool, with a knife, with a machete, none of that? No. From the autopsy report and the information that I read, there's no evidence that that happened at all. And she quickly dispels with a rumor I've seen circulating online that Lisanne's foot was broken or fractured. I know that there are some rumors that the, there was a fracture in one of the metatarsals, but in the autopsy report, I didn't read anything about a fracture in the metatarsals. From what I read, there are no traumas at all in any of the, of the bones. Georgina says the state of Lisanne's remains doesn't raise any eyebrows for her. The foot in the boot, the lack of skeletal trauma, nothing obviously points to foul play. It makes sense that Lisanne's foot was detached and her femur and tibia show normal signs of decomposition consistent with how long they were exposed in the jungle. But Chris's remains are another story. The only remains from the autopsy report of Chris Kramer, uh, it's a rib and uh, the left uh, coxal bone. So it's like nothing compared to all the bones you can have from, from a body. Um, a human body has 206 bones, and here we're only analyzing two of them. It's very difficult to say a lot from just two bones. She says Chris's pelvis shows evidence of scavenging. It means that animals could have eaten or, or scattered other parts of Chris's remains. Chris's autopsy report says that there were some scavenger marks in the pelvis. So that's very interesting because that tells you that they were chewing and they were taking soft tissue and maybe they were spreading the remains. It's not just animals that could have scattered the remains. Rain and sedimentation from the rain could have scattered remains that are already decomposed. Um, in eight weeks, the process of decomposition, yeah, you can start having a skeletonized um, parts of the body. 
um, you could have different parts scattered in, in two months. So maybe the bodies weren't torn apart by the river. Maybe they were broken up by animals and scattered after they decomposed. It helps explain, perhaps, why so few remains were recovered. In Chris's case, just two bones. Thanks for listening to Lost in Panama. We'd really appreciate it if you subscribed, rated, and reviewed on Apple Podcasts. Gracias. Thank you so much. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. So, mi gente, sometimes we go through difficult experiences that are hard to compartmentalize and ultimately make it difficult to charge ahead in life at full force. You know what I'm talking about. Fortunately, though, therapists are trained to help us figure out the cause of challenging emotions and to learn productive coping skills. BetterHelp makes it easier than ever to get help by providing therapy services 100% online. Amazingly, BetterHelp has connected over 3 million people with licensed therapists who are accessible anywhere. Therapy has honestly helped me immensely. As a journalist on the go, I see a lot in my line of work, and not all of it is positive. So I use therapy not only to help me cope, but to feel self-confident and maintain resiliency to keep reporting hard-hitting stories that deserve to be heard. As the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's super affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. And if things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash Panama. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Panama. So I was feeling really guilty about generating so much waste at home, leftover meals, you know how it goes, and all this waste that just went to landfills. I felt bad about the environment, you know, but the idea of composting seemed so complicated until I got a Lomi with the touch of a button. Kike? Yes, a button. I can conveniently turn my food scraps into dirt in under four hours. With my Lomi, I went from having two bags of garbage each week to barely one bag. Poof! It's like magic. Eso es como magia. Head to Lomi.com slash Panama and use the promo code Panama to get $50 off your Lomi. That's $50 off when you head to lomi.com slash Panama and use promo code Panama at checkout. Food waste is gross. Lomi is your solution. With the holidays also just around the corner, Lomi will make the perfect gift for someone on your shopping list. The oddest thing about Chris's bones 
and what we spend most of our time talking about on this call is that her two bones didn't show the same rate of decomposition. Her pelvis looked normal for how long it was exposed in the jungle. Her rib, not so much. Georgina says the rib had a stark white color, almost as if it had been bleached. The thing about that is that, yes, it's only one rib from Chris that has this whining coloration or, or is bleached. But you also have the pelvis from Chris, and it has the normal color of a decomposed soft tissue in a bone. Georgina tells us different parts of the body being at different stages of decay is no cause for alarm on its own. You can have different processes of decomposition in the same body. If the body uh, or the person was wearing clothes or maybe sedimentation was uh, on top of parts of the body, not all the body. If you have any trauma in your body where you have an open wound, that part of the body can decompose faster than the other part of the body. But the state of Chris's rib, it goes beyond these types of explanations. To get a bone this white, to be uh, really white, to have a bone bleach by sun, by sun exposure, you need a lot of time, more months, even years. Maybe if the body decomposed like in two or three days and the remains were exposed to the sun every day, you could say, okay, maybe that's the way that happened. But it sounds like probably not. Georgina's not sold that the rib was bleached by the sun, especially in a jungle filled with tree cover. She says there could be other natural explanations, but that most of these processes, just like sun bleaching, would have required more time. Um, so another explanation might be the soil composition or if it had any adiposphere, which is the soft tissue getting decomposed. And uh, adiposphere is a very specific kind of decomposition that it's very white and gets the bone this kind of uh, whitish color. That could be an explanation. I don't know because I didn't see the remains. Okay, so the rib could have been bleached by the sun, maybe, if the bone was left in direct sunlight for days and days on end. Or it could have been something in the soil. Or maybe the rib bone has a whitish appearance due to a depoussière, which leaves a white residue on the bone. Or let's just say it, that bone could have been bleached chemically. If Chris and the sand were murdered and the killer wanted to dispose of their bodies in a hurry, wouldn't that explain the bleaching? Doesn't that also explain why so few bones were found? We ask Georgina. To chemically clean or decompose one body but not the other, I don't know, that doesn't make sense to me in this case. Only one rib is bleached and the pelvis, also from Chris, is not bleached. And Lysane, she doesn't have, uh, or the remains, they don't have this bleaching uh, factor. So it's kind of confusing if someone used this kind of chemical. Why not use it in the whole body? Still, Georgina can't say for certain there wasn't some type of human intervention. There's just not enough there to make a determination. It's difficult to say there was no human alteration, uh, but you, I'm not able to confirm it. 
Even if we had more complete remains, we still might not be able to tell how Chris and Lisanne died. And that's what happened when Georgina worked on the Cody Dial case of the young American who died in the same jungle as Chris and Lisanne. Georgina told us that when Cody's remains were found two years after his disappearance, they were in pretty good shape. In the case I'm telling you about, we had more than 50% of the remains, and we were not able to say what happened to, to this guy. Cody's father believes a tree fell on him. But officially, the jury's still out. Maybe he got uh, bitten by a snake. Uh, he was allergic. Uh, we, we are not able to, to know that because we don't have the soft tissue. So we didn't, we didn't determine the cause of death with the remains that we had. Then Georgina says something pretty meta as it relates to this case. She says right before the remains were found, an investigative docuseries was being done about Cody Dial. They spent two years searching for him, and National Geographic did a documentary of six episodes having the theory of his murder and who did it, and they did interviews, and, you know, these, they armed the whole case. And before the first episode went to air, we found the human remains, and I was able to analyze them, and no trauma, no fractures, any sign of violence was found in the remains. And they had to, I think they changed the whole version of the case because of this, um, because of, of, the, of what I found in the analysis. Look, it's no secret a lot of people believe Chris and Lisanne were murdered. Maybe they were, maybe they weren't. But if more remains were to turn up, says Georgina, that could solve this case. It's very uh, frustrating not to have more uh, more remains, there might be somewhere. So who knows where, where they might be, and, and maybe in the future you could find more human remains from Chris and Lisanne. Georgina says Chris and Lisanne's remains could very well still be out there, scattered in the jungle. She says Cody Dial's remains were right under their noses for two years. People spent a lot of months searching for this guy, and when we got to the point where the remains were found, they told us, we passed by like 100 meters from here and we never saw anything. And the father who also went where the remains were found, he also told us, I spent like two weeks going through this same place uh, and very near, but they didn't get at the exact spot. It makes me wonder, could Chris and the Sands remains still be out there? still recoverable. Sounds like search teams only focused near the Rio Culebra. But maybe that's just where a few of their bones were scattered by animals or by rain, like Georgina says. Maybe their remains are deeper in the jungle, somewhere that hasn't been searched before. We need more remains to surface. And barring that, Georgina says, the only way to get answers is through investigative means. The context is like 50% of the case. You have the evidence and the body and, or the human remains, but the other 50 is the context. Okay, where was the body found? Um, was there shadow? Was there sun exposure? Was there water? Were there scavengers? How was, what was the temperature? Uh, who found it? How did they find it? All that information 
all that context is what gives you uh, the help to be able to analyze better. On the drive back, we process what these two experts have told us. The original forensic anthropologist is convinced this was a homicide, even though there's no evidence of that. Georgina says everything checks out for an accident. I mean, the bleaching of the rib is odd, but there could be a natural explanation. With so little to go on, it's impossible to draw conclusions from the autopsies alone. I keep thinking about what Georgina said, that unless more physical evidence shows up, the best we can hope for is a break in the investigation. Georgina suggested we take a long, hard look at how the remains were found. When, under what circumstances, by whom. We know that after the women's backpack turned up, a group of men from Alto Romero combed the riverbanks looking for Chris and the Sands' remains. Jeremy says he's met with one of those men before. Loriano Vejerano was a part of the search party that found some of the, some of the human remains uh, identified as belonging to Chris and Lisanne. He also found some of the clothes, or so he told me in an interview a few years ago. Does Laureano remember anything that could be a clue in this investigation? We head to his home to find out. Thanks for listening to Lost in Panama. We'd really appreciate it if you subscribed, rated, and reviewed on Apple Podcasts. Gracias. Thank you so much. As a journalist who investigates crime and unsolved cases, this had me compelled and on the edge of my seat all the way through. Okay, just listen to the story. Cherie Warren was a young mother looking for a fresh start. Recently divorced, I mean, I've been there. She had moved out, found a great job, and even found a new boyfriend. She was happy for the first time in a long time. But on a crisp October evening, after a long day, Cherie said goodbye to her co-workers, left the office, and was never heard from again. All eyes quickly turned toward her ex-husband. He had previously lured another woman into the woods, beating her with a tire iron. But there was another man that piqued the interest of investigators, Cherie's new boyfriend. He was a former reserve police officer with a dark history of sexual violence. The two men closest to Cherie swore they loved her and promised to protect her. But did one of them murder her? You have to listen to this case, obviously. Tienen que escuchar este caso. In season three of the hit true crime podcast, Cold, host David Cauley digs into what really happened to Cherie. Hey, Prime members, listen to the Amazon Music exclusive podcast, Cold, in the Amazon Music app. Download the app today. You cannot miss out on this. No se lo pueden perder. Laureano divides his time between Boquete and his farm near Alto Romero, close to where the backpack and the remains were found. But tonight, we head to his place in town, on a mountainside overlooking Boquete. It's almost midnight, 
when we finally reach the long dirt road that leads to his house. It's pretty spooky. Hola, buenas noches. When Laureano invites us inside, it's clear he's quite drunk. Although he initially agreed to an interview, he changes his mind when we arrive. He even tries to call his friend Feliciano to inform him that we're at his house asking questions. He finally agrees to talk to us, but not on tape. So we'll summarize what he told us. Laureano says, in the days after the backpack was found, locals from Alto Romero were paid to search the area near the Rio Culebra. Included in that group was none other than Feliciano. He says he and Feliciano were both there when, on July 16th, just a few days after the backpack was discovered, the team found Lasanne's boot with the foot in it, Chris's pelvic bone, Chris's denim shorts, and another shoe. He's cagey when we ask him who exactly found each item and where exactly each item was found. The kinds of details we're hoping will shed more light on this case. In fact, he says he was warned not to talk about what he found to anyone. The other thing that he said that I thought was interesting was that they had only had orders to search the river. Mm-hmm. Like, not to search anywhere else. It sounded like from the same people who found the backpack who worked for Feliciano's family. It seems at every critical turn in this investigation, up pops Feliciano. He was the last person to see Chris and Lasanne alive in Boquete, the one to report the missing and first search the pianista, even before Cineproc got there. And he was there at the Rio Culebra when a team of Ngabebugle villagers, several if not all of whom were employed by himself or his family, found Chris and Lasanne's fragmented remains. We still don't know if Chris and Lasanne were murdered. But if they were, Feliciano probably knows something about it. But we can't get close to him. He knows who Jeremy is and what he looks like. He'll never agree to talk to us. But then we have an idea. He may know Jeremy, but he doesn't know me. He doesn't know who I am. He knows who you are. He's threatened you in the past. So I'm going to try to approach him with two tourists pretending there were three girls who are interested in having a tour guide show us around. The plot comes together. After our pianista hike, we exchange numbers with Jackie and Caroline, the two German tourists we ran into on the trail. If they're willing to help us, we could all pose as tourists wanting to hire a Feliciano and sneak in some questions about Chris and Lasanne along the way. We just need to approach him in a way that he's not suspicious. That he thinks they're innocent tourists. Our local guide volunteers to call Feliciano. He's the same farmer who's been neighbors with Feliciano for years. So if he calls and says he knows a group of tourists looking to sightsee, that could be our way in. We'll plan to meet with him in a public place like a cafe. And we'll have the team outside in case anything happens. Because I don't want to be alone with that guy. And I don't want to put these girls, like, if we can, the more guys that we can have, we'd be putting them in, you know, in less danger. I know it could be dangerous, but we need to talk to Feliciano. He's 
all over this case, and he could say anything during this meeting. Maybe he could implicate himself, or slip up, or give us a new lead. I have to talk to him. We give the team the go-ahead. So now, do we want to call? Feliciano. Yes. We're assuming also that the girls are going to go through it. Yeah. If not, we'll think of a plan B. Okay. They're pretty adventurous. I think they'll go for it. But... I do, tis my hunch. Yeah. Yes. Let's do it. Do you have the number? The Feliciano number? We rehearse the call, and then our guide dials the number. We all hold our breath. Hello? Hello? The phone call lasts eight agonizing minutes. I can barely hear Feliciano on the other line. But when our guide hangs up, he's smiling. The meeting's set. We're on. Wow. Wow, Vigo. Que actor. Fuck, we got him for tomorrow. Wow, great job, guys. Great job. Wonderful stuff. Um, sorry for the swearing. I just... I got, uh, got nervous. Like, I'm sorry, I keep hitting you. <laughs> um, so essentially, we have set up uh, a fake tour with me and the two German tourist girls for tomorrow with one of our main suspects uh, for this investigation, who Jeremy also had been had tried to get close to, and this man has refused all of your interviews throughout the years. And threatened me pleasantly enough. It's gonna be dangerous, but I, I feel so much better you're coming. We're good to go for tomorrow. To our knowledge, Feliciano hasn't spoken publicly about this case for years. I'm hyped at the prospect of going undercover on a sting operation. But also, I will admit, me da un poquito de miedo. I'm a little afraid to meet him. I reach for my phone to call Jackie and Caroline to see if they're willing to help us. And that's when I notice something disturbing on my phone. There's a new message from an unknown address. Came in about an hour ago, sent to my personal email. And inside the message is just one word. Kill. More next time. Sorry, I just, I just got like a creepy email. I got an email to my personal email that literally says, kill. El hijo es problematico, see? The son has problems. When he's drinking, he can become violent. He changes. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a doctor. But I know from my past work that these are signs of a person who can be considered a psychopath. Cinco muertos. What? Pardon? Cinco muertos. Cinco muertos. It says five dead. Cinco muertos relacionados que estuvieron con la holandesa he says five people were killed after Chris and Lisanne went missing. Lost in Panama is hosted by me, Mariana Atencio, with original reporting by Jeremy Kreit and Mariana Atencio. Chief Investigative Correspondent, Jeremy Kreit. Written by Jeremy Kreit and Trent K. Maverick. Produced by Trent K. Maverick. Executive Producers, Colin Thompson, Julian Favre, and Jeremy Kreit. 
Supervising producer, DJ Lubell. Co-producer, Mona Hassan. Associate producer, Lenora Quiñones. Translator, Lenora Quiñones. Editing by Stephen Perez, Anton Doty, and Alex Gonzalez. Mixing and mastering by Matt Sul. Voice actors, Cesar Castillo and Stephen Perez. Travel and logistics coordinator, Brooke MacArthur. On-site audio recording by Richard Carlos. On-site photography by Luis Iga Garza. Original music written by Colin Thompson. Orchestration, arrangement, and additional compositions by Andrew Gerliger and Jesse Haugen. Music recorded at the Resort Studios. Music engineered by Caleb Morris. Assistant engineer, Jordan DiDonato. Instrumentalists, Matt Ordaz, Phil Glenn, Laura Bedal, Jennifer Wu, Jean-Paul Barjon, Sam Solorzano, Jesse Haugen, and Trevor Gomez. Additional music from Blue Dot Sessions and APM. Cover art by Paula Henches. Special assistance by Elizabeth Muñoz, Martin Eduardo Ferrara O'Donnell, Pamela Soledad Adaro, Mayra Alejandra Madrid Rodríguez, Antonio Quiroz, Balbino Samudio, Max de Arles Rovira, and Ahmed Villarreal. Special thanks to Hannah Smith. Very special thanks to Susan Rizetka. Thanks for listening to Lost in Panama. We hope the story means as much to you as it does to us. We'd really appreciate it if you subscribed, rated, and reviewed us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Gracias. Thanks so much. Subscribe to Cast Plus to listen ad-free with bonus episodes at castmedia.com slash cast plus. Listen to this podcast ad-free on Amazon Music.